Yeah. Man, we went around the world at least four times there, I think. But uh, what a blessing. You know, when you come to meetings like this and you get around other Christians and other servants of God, it's a blessing to know that God uh, operates uh, in such great ways outside our little world. And uh, sometimes we get really focused on uh, our needs and what God's doing in our lives and the ministry that God gives us. But boy, you get to a place like this and you just see God's working all over the world in so many different ways, so many different lives. And yet it's all kind of connected too. And it's a small world when you get around God's people and uh, realize that there's an intersection of so many different things uh, that makes it all work. And uh, we're thankful for it. It's been a wonderful day and uh, trust that God will speak to our hearts now tonight through His Word. Take your Bible. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke. And the second chapter tonight, and you'll recognize this as the kind of the ending of the Christmas account. This is not a Christmas message, but there's a thought here that I want to focus our attention on in Luke chapter 2. And you'll recognize the context as we read it, starting in verse 25. The Bible says in Luke 2 and verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the, found, before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. This is the first time of many times in the New Testament where people marveled at something Jesus said or something that Jesus did. Mary and Martha, the earthly parents of Jesus, at his birth here, they marvel, the Bible says, at these things that are being spoken of this child, the promised Messiah. And time after time, as we go through the life of Christ, we find people marveling at something that Jesus said or something that he did. For example, in John chapter 7 and verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? In other words, Jesus was answering the experts of the Old Testament, their questions. He was explaining the Word of God to them, and they were saying, how does he know these things? He's never been to our schools. He's never studied the Old Testament. How does he know these things? They marveled at him. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 27, the Bible says, the men marveled, saying, what, a, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They marveled that he had power over the elements, over nature itself. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 33, when the devil was cast out, the devil spake and the multitudes marveled, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. 
They never saw anyone cast out the underground, the evil spirits, the demonic world, and they marveled at Jesus. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 17, Jesus answering said, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and unto God's the things that are God's. And they marveled at his saying. I marvel when I have to pay taxes as well. But they marveled that Jesus was giving honor to God, but also to government that he had instituted. In John chapter 4, you recall Jesus and the woman at the well and his disciples had gone into the city to buy meat. And Jesus is speaking there to the woman and, and uh, drawing her unto himself and to salvation. And when the disciples returned from their expedition, they marveled that he talked with the woman. Why? Because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They marveled that he would have this conversation with a Samaritan woman. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 5, Pilate is asking Jesus a series of questions, and the Bible says Jesus answered nothing. And Pilate marveled at him. Over and over again throughout the Scripture, we see people marveling at the Son of God. And we ought to take some time every day in our life to just stop and marvel at the goodness of God in our life. To just focus for a moment on our salvation, to focus for a moment on the goodness of God. And it is a marvel that God would save us. It's a marvel that God would allow us to be used in any kind of a way. Now, the word marvel means awed, to be overwhelmed, to be struck with wonder, to be amazed to be taken back, to be staggered, to be astonished. And it's understandable that finite man would be marveling at the infinite God. But does God ever marvel at us? When God looks at your life or mine, is he ever awestruck? Is he ever amazed? Is he ever taken back? There are two times in the New Testament when the Bible says that Jesus marveled at people. And I want to look at them tonight. Go over to Mark chapter 6, if you will. The Gospel of Mark and chapter 6. And here we see that Jesus marvels at some people's skeptical fear. Mark chapter 6, look at verse 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled. Because of their unbelief. 
Jesus here marvels at their skeptical fear. In verse number two, they were skeptical of his words. Later in chapter two, or verse two, it says they were skeptical of his works. Now, isn't it interesting that everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did were fulfillments of the prophecy concerning the Messiah? The Old Testament had said, when the Messiah comes, he will speak these things. He will do these kinds of works. And yet here he is. He's in their presence. He's saying what the Old Testament prophets said he would say. He's doing the things the Old Testament prophets said he would do. And yet they were skeptical. They were hesitant toward the promises of God. Everything that Jesus was doing was a direct fulfillment of the prophecy concerning the Messiah. And yet they were living in a skeptical fear with respect to those promises. I wonder, do we find ourselves becoming skeptical of his promise? I meet so many people today that are skeptical about the promise of salvation. People say, well, it, it, it just can't be that easy. I mean, I mean, uh, you can't just go to heaven because you pray a prayer and ask Jesus to forgive you and, and repent of your sins. I mean, you, you, you've got to be a part of a church or something. You, you've got to give some money or you've got to be baptized or you've got to do some great work in order to get to heaven. And people are skeptical concerning the promise of salvation. But what does the Bible say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Yet people are skeptical when it comes to the promise of salvation. People are skeptical when it comes to the promise of security. We look around in our world and we get fearful. We see a world that's in utter chaos. We see a world that as 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1 describes perilous times, and the word perilous means unraveled. We see a world tonight that's unraveled. It's coming off of its hinges, so to speak. And everywhere we go, there's chaos, there's, there's rioting, there's, there's uh, division, there's strife. And it makes us fearful. And we wonder, are we going to be safe? Well, what did God promise? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. But we become skeptical of the promise of security. We become skeptical with respect to the promise of his strength. We say, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm tired. I'm wore out. Lord, I, I just can't do it. I just can't be the husband I'm supposed to be. I, I just don't have the energy to parent these kids. I, I, I just don't have the energy to do what they need done at the church. Lord, I'm just too tired to go on. Oh, what did we learn this morning? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He giveth power to the faint. To them that have no might, he increaseth strength. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. But we doubt the promise of his strength. We doubt the promise of his supply. We say, God, have you heard of inflation? 
I mean, it's getting a little rough down here. Can you maybe reduce the tithe to eight and a half? You know, I mean, we're struggling down here. Lord, are you aware of what's going on here? And we doubt the promise of his supply. But what does God say in Philippians 4.19? But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And by the way, I'm glad he didn't say, my God shall supply all your need out of his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He didn't say that. Because if he supplied our need out of his riches, it would indicate that he could run out. What's your, what's your name again? What is it? Molly. Suppose Molly said to me, Brother Getch, my parents are really cheap. My parents are super stingy. And I don't have any money. Could you give me $2? Well, Molly, sure. I think I can. Yeah, in fact, I have a $2 bill. There you go. Now, if I supply Molly's need out of what I have, I now have less than what I had 30 seconds ago. Because I supplied her need out of my riches. By the way, don't get any ideas. I only have a dollar left. <laughs> but God didn't say, I'll supply your need out of my riches. He said, I'm going to supply your need according to my riches. God's not going to run out. God cannot run out. That's why David could say, I've been young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor seed begging bread. Sometimes we doubt the promise of his schedule. Psalm 37, you know it, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Now, you could think of that word ordered in a couple different ways. If you went to a restaurant and you sat down at the table, a waiter, waitress would come by eventually and hand out some menus and, and uh, say, would you like something to drink while you look over the menus? And you'd say, yeah, I'll have some water. I'll have water with lemon or I'll have an iced tea or I'll have a Coke or whatever. And she'll say, okay, I'll go get those for you. She returns with those uh, things to drink, and then she says, are you ready to order, right? And we are. We're, we're ready to order. So we now place our order. We've looked at the menu. We see something we think we're going to like, and so we, we order. Now think of this verse in that sense. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. As we saw this morning, God has a purpose for our life. God's already ordered before you existed, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Right? Here's the Apostle Paul. He didn't even get saved to his probably 30. But even when God separated him from his mother's womb, God already put in an order. God said, I know what I want you to do. I want you to turn the Gentiles from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith that is in me. God has an order. God has already placed an order in your life. He has a purpose. He has a plan. By the way, isn't it frustrating when they get it wrong at the restaurant? And they bring your order and it's like, 
I didn't want scrambled eggs. I wanted them fried. Can you fix this? I wonder sometimes if God in heaven is saying, I didn't order that. Can you fix that? Because the way you're living is not what I ordered. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. But you could also look at that word order, meaning sequence. If, if, you had, if you were a teacher and you gave a test and maybe there were 30 students in the class and now you grade the test and, and you need to record the grades in your grade book or in some data program, you might be wise to place those tests in alphabetical order by last name so that putting them into your grade book would be a lot easier if they were in alphabetical order. And that would be a simple task to put them in alphabetical order. Order indicates sequence. So the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Job said, thou numberest all my steps. When I was in elementary school, sometimes the teacher would come in and she'd say, all right, boys and girls, take everything off your desk. I want your desk completely clear. And most of us would panic a little bit because that usually meant a test. And, 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 and so you'd, you'd sit there, and she'd, she'd walk around, she'd, she'd take a piece of paper and put it face down on your, on your desk, say, don't turn it over until I tell you. Well, now you're really getting concerned. You know, you're thinking, what is under there? You know, what do we have to do? And then she'd get them all passed out, and she'd say, all right, turn them over and begin. And I would turn that thing over, and it was one of those dot-to-dots. Remember those? I love those things. This page with all these little dots on it, little numbers next to the dots. And, and the idea was to teach how to count. And so you, you had to take your pencil and you'd, you'd look at that page and you had to find the dot with number one. And when you found it, you put your pencil there. And then, then you had to find number two. You had to look for the number two dot. And you drew a line from number one to number two. And then you found number three and you drew to number three. And then to number four and then to number five. And if you did it in the proper sequence of numbers, when you got them all connected, it revealed a picture that you didn't know was there. Now, I don't know about you. I'm kind of competitive by nature. And so when we would begin those things, I wanted to be the first one done. I wanted to be the kid to stand up first and say, it's a rooster, it's a rooster. <laughs> and so, man, I'd go to work on that. I'd go from one to two and three and four, five and... Then I'd look over at the girl next to me, and she saw like number nine. And I would panic. And I'd think, man, she's going she's gonna to know before I do. And so I'd, I'd go from five to 13, <laughs> then to 19, 26. Now I'm ahead. <laughs> but you know, if you do that, when you get done, it's not a rooster. It's a mess. But isn't that what we do with our lives? God's got us on dot six. And we say, God, I don't like this dot. Get me off this dot. Lord, I don't like the looks of seven either. Can I just go to eight? <laughs> Have you ever talked to a little kid? I talk to a lot of little kids. And sometimes hard to get a conversation going with them at first, you know. And, and you'll ask them their name and they'll tell you. And then, they, how old are you? And isn't it interesting? Kids will always say, I'm almost seven. 
Or they'll say, I'm almost 10. It's always almost something. And so they'll say, I'm almost seven. Really? Wow. When's your birthday? April. It's June. <laughs> you know, but they're almost seven. You know, kids, they can't wait till they're 10, you know, double digits. And they can't wait to be 13, a teenager. And then they can't wait to be 16. They can drive a car. Then they can't wait to be 18. They can go to war. And, and then they can't wait to go to college. And then they can't wait to get married. And then they can't wait to have kids. And then they can't wait till the kids leave. And, and isn't it true? We're never happy with the dot we're on. We always want to... Figure out our schedule instead of God's. You can put your clothes in a washing machine, but you might want to leave the dial alone once you put them in there. You might get in a hurry and you might want to speed things up a little bit and skip some of the cycles and you'll get done faster, but your clothes won't be clean. And oftentimes in our life, we want to touch the dial of our life, and we, we don't want to trust God's schedule in our life as, as we ought. Are we doubting God's promises tonight? Because a hesitancy, a hesitancy toward God's promises leads to a hindrance of God's power. Did you notice it here? In verse 5, he could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. He had come to that place to do a great work. He had come there to do some mighty miracles, but he could not because of their unbelief. In Matthew chapter 13, he could do not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Wouldn't it be sad if God looked down at Bible Baptist Church tonight in Brookings, South Dakota and said, there it is. That's the place right there. See it? Brookings, South Dakota. Right there in that NTA conference. You see that? That's where I want to start an awakening. Right there. Right there. No, we better find another place. There's, there's no faith there. Wouldn't that be sad? Wouldn't it be sad if God looked at my life or your life and said, there he is. That's the gal. That's the guy I want to use. No, we better move on. There's no faith there. A hesitancy toward God's promises leads to a hindrance of God's power. There's an amazing story in 2 Kings 6 and 7. The nation of Israel was experiencing a famine, a very bad famine. There was no food. They had money, but there was nothing to buy. The stores were empty. The supply line had been shut off. There was nothing. You could have silver in your pocket, but you couldn't buy anything to eat. It got so bad in 2 Kings 6, there were two women who had baby sons who decided they were going to kill their sons, one today, one tomorrow, boil them and eat them in order to survive. You can go home and read it. Hollywood has nothing on the Bible. These are desperate times. And so that first day, they took the one woman's little baby boy, and they killed it, and they boiled it, and they ate it. Well, the next day, the woman whose son had been eaten said to the one who still was alive, she said to the mother, okay, 
Today we eat your son, and the other woman had hidden her son. And now there was a struggle. Now there was an argument. And the king heard about it, and the king rent his clothes. He thought, how have we gotten to this point where we are eating our own children? Well, the prophet Elisha shows up in chapter 7 and verse 1, and he hears about the dilemma, and he says this, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, tomorrow about this time, in other words, within 24 hours, tomorrow about this time, shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. He said, hang on, folks. God sees our dilemma. God knows our need. And tomorrow you can take the smallest currency you have and you can buy all the food you need. Well, then a Lord, upon whose hand the king leaned. So here's an advisor to the king. Then a Lord, upon whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, How shall this be? If God opened the windows of heaven, this cannot be. He's mocking. He's laughing at the prophet. He's saying, You're crazy. There is no way this can happen. Verse 2, Elisha said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. You can go home and read the rest of the story. Chapter 7. Nearby Syrian camp, Syrian city, got discapopulated. They ran for the hills. They left everything behind. The Israelites went in, took the spoil, and they had all the food they could possibly eat and more. But that Lord, verse 20, the Bible says the people trolled him down in the street that he died as said the Lord. Elisha said, because you have no faith, it's going to happen. You're not going to be a participant. Friend, revival can happen in this country, but some of us aren't going to see it. Because we don't have faith. Jesus marvels here at their skeptical fear. But turn to the other passage. Go to Luke chapter 7, because here's the positive side. Chapter 7 of Luke, you know the story. But here Jesus marvels at a man's superlative faith. In verse 1 of chapter 7 in Luke, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. For I'm not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. 
Turn him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Nothing arrests the attention of God like our faith. Because without faith, it is impossible, not unlikely, not improbable, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Now, Jesus had seen people's faith before this account. People had demonstrated faith to Jesus before Luke chapter 7. People had been saved. People had been healed. Uh, Jesus had done many things, and, and they had exhibited faith in him. So why here does Jesus marvel at this man's faith? Well, a couple thoughts. It was preceded by a curious humility. This centurion had a pretty impressive resume. I don't know if you noticed it here, but as the centurion sends some servants to Jesus to let him know of the problem, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we, we, we know you're busy. We, we know you're ministering here, but there's a need. A centurion, his servant is sick. And he would like you to come and heal him. And, and he's worthy. He, he's worthy, Lord. We, we know you're busy. You're doing a good work here. But, but this is a worthy request. He loveth our nation. Now, 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 now just think on this a minute. This is a Roman centurion. They don't like the nation of Israel. The Romans were the ones that were harassing Israel all the time. They were exacting the heavy taxes. They were, they were being violent toward the people. The, the Roman centurions, they didn't care about the common person in Israel. But this man, they said, he loves our nation. He's built us a synagogue. Think about that for a minute. Suppose somebody shows up at your church next Sunday. Walks in the back door as the service is concluding. And they said, uh, is the pastor here? <laughs> Sounds a little angry. We, we all point to the pastor. <laughs> he comes over to you and he says, you the pastor? Yes, sir. Can do for you. Well, I was just driving by. Not really a church person. First time I've ever been in a church, actually. I'm an atheist. But it looks like you could use some help. Here's a check for $5 million. Go build yourself a nice building. That's this guy. He's a Roman centurion who has built the Jews a synagogue. They're saying, Lord, uh, come with us. You know, this guy's worthy of your attention. So Jesus comes. But he doesn't get all the way there. Before he gets there, the centurion sends... Some friends out to him and says, Lord, please stop. I, I, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Lord, that's why I didn't come to you. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. His faith was preceded by a curious humility. 
we have to be real careful that we don't presume that God is going to answer our prayers because of who we are. That God somehow owes us a favor. I'll illustrate it this way. Have you ever gone to church the night of a big game? Your team is playing, and the game just happens to be at the same time as church. And you're really tempted to stay home and watch the game. But you think, no, I can't do that. i got to go to church. So you go to church. But the whole time you're sitting there, you're thinking, now, Lord, I know my team's winning. I, I know you're helping them to win. Because I could have stayed home and watched them play. But I came to church. So surely, Lord, you're ble- I'm sure they're up 21 to nothing right now. Have you ever done that? I have. <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, you owe me. I went to church. We've got to be careful, don't we? Because it's by humility that there are riches and honor and life. God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the lowly. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. This man's faith was preceded by a curious humility. If we want God's blessings, we've got to stay broken. If we want God's miracles, we've got to stay modest. If, if we want God to do the impossible, then we've got to stay insignificant. But notice also, his faith was partnered with a confident hope. Now, when we use the word hope, we, we say, boy, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Well, what's that based on? Well, I watched the weather. Good luck with that. We use the word hope. I, I, boy, I hope I get a raise at work. I, I, I hope, you know, I, I, I have good health next year. I, I hope. It's not really based on anything. But that's not how the Bible defines hope. Hope in the Bible is defined as a confident expectation. When Paul said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Paul wasn't saying, I hope Jesus comes back. No, he knew he was coming back. A confident expectation. And this man says, Lord, just just speak the word. Lord, you don't have to come. Just speak the word. I have servants. I tell them to go. They go. I tell them to come. They come. I tell them to do this. They do it. Lord, just, just speak the word and he'll be whole. It was partnered with a confident hope. Is God... Marveling tonight at our fear? Or is he marveling tonight at our faith? Now, sometimes faith on paper and faith in practice is two different things. Several years ago, we have chapel every day at the college, and and for five straight weeks, every day for five weeks, Every preacher preached on faith. It wasn't planned. We didn't send out you know, a letter to the preachers we invited to come preach. Hey, we want you to preach on faith. God just, you know how he does that. And every message, day after day, after day it became the joke on campus. Let's go chapel, we can hear about faith. I mean, it just, it, we knew it. It was coming. And God was teaching us some wonderful things. Well, there was a girl in the college at that time. Her name was Chrissy. 
Chrissy was a sophomore. And I didn't know Chrissy extremely well. I knew where she was from. I knew she was from a single family home. And, and uh, she had played volleyball on our, our team our freshman year and had done quite well. She was not a starter, but it did, did very well. But she wasn't playing that, that sophomore year. And I saw her in the back hallway one day and I said, uh, Chrissy, um, you're, you're not playing volleyball this year. And her head kind of sunk and she said, no, I, I have to work more this year. And uh, I said, oh, well, I understand. I, I, I applaud you for that. I appreciate that. Giving up something you love to do something you need to do. And I, I said, the Lord will bless that. And I, I do hope you get caught up so that you can play next year. I think you have some great potential. We had a little conversation. About two weeks into this series of messages on faith. And Chrissy, she always sat in my eye line. I, I sit on the platform and... And, and I'm tilted toward the platform, toward the pulpit. And, but if I look past the pulpit, Chrissy would always be sitting there, right there in my eye line. And, and she was the kind of girl that would copiously be taking notes in chapel and just drinking it in. And when the invitation was given, she'd always come right to the altar. And she'd be praying. About two weeks into this, she came into my office one day and her countenance was changed. And I said, Chrissy, what's wrong? She began to cry, and she said, my uncle just passed away. She said, Brother Gad, she wasn't saved. He's in hell. She said, my mom and I are the only ones that are saved in my family. I'm so burdened for them. We prayed together, and I said, Chrissy, are you going to go home for the funeral? Her head took that dip as it did in that back hallway when I asked her about volleyball, and she said no. I said, Chrissy, is it financial? I didn't know this. But Chrissy was working two jobs, 30 hours a week each, 60 hours plus taking a full load, because her mom had cancer and no insurance. And Chrissy was taking one of those checks every week and sending it home to her mom, trying to help with those treatments, and putting the other check on her school bill. I said, Chrissy, is it financial? And she said, yes. I said, Chrissy, I want you to go back to the dorm, pack. You're going to go home. You're going to this funeral. I'll get you the ticket. You, you need to be there. Your mom needs you. You need to be there. Your family needs you to be a testimony and a witness. She went back to the dorm. I got a ticket. We drove her to the airport. And Chrissy went to the funeral. We kept having messages on faith. Chrissy returned a week later. She had led two of her cousins to Christ at the funeral. And we were so excited for her. Well, we're still hearing about faith, and Chrissy's still listening, and Chrissy's still coming forward after the services. Five weeks into this, I'm walking into chapel one day, and Dr. Weaver, who often leads our singing, was in front of me. And, and Dr. Weaver is one of those sorts that's very unpredictable. You never quite know what he's going to say or do. And he's one of the funniest people I've ever been around. And and so you're, you're always kind of prepared for anything. And we were walking onto the platform, just he and I, and he was in the lead, ready to go out and lead the first song. 
He opens the door to go on the platform, and then he whirled around, and he, and he slapped an envelope on my Bible, and he said, oh, you need to read this. It's from Chrissy. Well, he takes off on the platform. Well, now I walk out. I've got this note on top of my Bible as I'm singing the first song. And I'm curious about what's in the note. But I don't dare look. We're singing. <laughs> so after the song, I was to lead in prayer, and so I did. But during the prayer, I peeked. And I opened the envelope and I read the note, and I could not believe what I read. Chrissy had gotten a call from an attorney that morning. Her uncle, unbeknownst to her and her mom, was very wealthy. And had left Chrissy and her mom all of his wealth, enough to pay the $750,000 of medical expenses already incurred, all of Chrissy's tuition for four years. And much, much more, well over a million dollars. Well, the preacher dutifully preached on faith that morning. Chrissy's out there just riding as fast as she can. When the invitation was given, she came, but now she's weeping at that altar, not tears of Lord help me, but tears of joy. When everyone went back to their seat, I stood up and I said, uh, well, another great message on faith. I said, Chrissy, Come on up here. She, she said, uh, come on. I said, I've read the note. She came up. I said, Chrissy, tell us what happened. She told our students the story. We applauded God for about five minutes that morning. We just had a good time. We closed chapel and went to our next class, and I did. And came back to my office, and my office was on the second floor, and I was climbing the stairs, and there was a girl sitting on the landing outside my office. Her name was Joanne. Joanne was a nice girl. But Joanne was sort of a pessimist, always late to assignments, late on her finances, always kind of down in the dumps. But she was sitting up there, and when she saw me, she jumped out of the chair and began to jump up and down. Dr. Getch, Dr. Getch. I said, Joanna, calm down, calm down. Come on in. I pushed my office door back. She came in. I said, have a seat. She wouldn't sit down. She came right up to the edge of my desk and she said, Brother Ketch, Chrissy's testimony. Chrissy's testimony. I said, yeah, wasn't that something? She began to weep. She said, Brother Ketch, I didn't have a class after chapel. So after everyone left, I went to the altar. And I said, God, I need faith. Lord, faith. Increase my faith. She said, I prayed for about 20 minutes. And I was going back to my dorm to drop off my things to go to lunch, and I was passing by the post office, and I thought, well, I never get anything, but I might as well check. She said, Brother Getch, there was an envelope in my box with a check that covers my entire school bill for this year. And she leaned over my desk and put her finger right in my face. And she said, Dr. Getch, you need faith. You need faith. I said, Joanna, we've been hearing it for five weeks. Where have you been? But ladies and gentlemen, faith on paper looks different than faith in practice. Is God awestruck tonight at our fear? 
Is he in heaven going, wow, they don't get it? They don't understand? Or is God in heaven tonight saying, whoa, look at that faith. Look at that faith. Would he marvel at your fear? Or would he marvel at your faith? Let's pray together. Father, I guess it's one or the other, isn't it, Lord? We live in fear or we live in faith. No matter what the area, no matter what the context, it boils down to whether we trust you or whether we don't. And Lord, I don't know all the needs in the hearts of these pastors and their families and these laymen at Bible Baptist Church tonight. Lord, we could probably stay till midnight just listing the various situations and circumstances and needs that are represented here in this room tonight. And Lord, every one of us can walk out in a moment in fear or we can walk out in faith. And Lord, thank you that we don't have to fear. You've not given us a spirit of fear. You said, fear not, I'm with thee. Be not dismayed, I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God, may you look down tonight at this conference and be awestruck. May you be overwhelmed. May you be taken aback. Not by our fear, but by our faith. Speak to our hearts tonight. As our heads are bowed, let's stand quietly if you can to your feet as the music begins. With our heads bowed, if God has spoken to your heart tonight.